0: Today is November 8th, 2016, and my guest is New York University political scientist and Hoover Institution senior fellow, Bruce Buena de Mesquita. His latest book, co-authored with Alistair Smith, and the topic of today's conversation is The Spoils of War, Greed, Power, and the Conflicts that Made Our Greatest Presidents. Bruce, welcome back to Econ Talk.
1: It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Your book argues that uh, greatness is a little bit overrated. Uh, the presidents that we rate highly are overrated, uh, and that we particularly overrate presidents who take us to war, and that we, in addition, we misunderstand their motives. Uh, how do you see presidents making the fateful decision of committing um, the United States to war?
1: Well, somewhere on their list of priorities, well down on their list of priorities, maybe things about what is good for the United States as they understand it, or what is good for we the people as they understand it. The top item on their list is what is good for them. Now, I'm sure they think that what is good for them is good for the country. Uh, and what is good for them tends to reduce to either uh, economic gain or more often, electoral gain, what will get them reelected? Presidents who go to war are vastly more likely to be reelected than presidents who produce peace and prosperity.
0: And they're vastly more likely to be rated highly by posterity, which, of course, is one of the um, inducements or incentives to go to war, I would think.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, if you look at the rankings by historians, for example, Uh, of how our presidents have done, very highly correlated with how many American deaths in war they presided over. Uh, So typically, historians uh, rank Warren Harding uh, last among presidents. Warren Harding presided over zero deaths in war and an 8% average annual increase in per capita income. At the top, they rank, for example, Abraham Lincoln, who presided over 750,000 American deaths in war uh, and a growth rate of under 2%. Uh,
0: You're a little bit cynical, Bruce. Uh, Some would call you a realist. Uh, Is there no room? You said way down the list is what's good for the country or good for the people. You're suggesting that the decisions that these men made uh, were – they fooled us. You know, after – they made these bad decisions, or at least self-interested decisions, and yet somehow they managed to avoid the verdict of history that they were um, self-interested. How do you explain that? Well, it's a very
1: difficult question. Um, for the average person, of course, the assessment of how presidents did is related to what they see as heroic things that they know about, like war. War is a very big deal. It takes people's lives, it takes money and so forth, and so uh, we treat it as heroic because to treat it otherwise uh, would be very depressing because we do a lot of war fighting. Um, people say that they are in favor of peace and prosperity, and presidents, uh, candidates for the presidency, say they are in favor of peace and prosperity. It just turns out that peace and prosperity doesn't get them reelected, doesn't do them very much good. Uh, and I, I am indeed cynical. Uh, the first most important thing a president can do is please enough of his or her constituents that the president gets reelected. Uh, and war does the
0: trick. And you talked in an earlier episode of Econ Talk and you talk in this, ep- in this book as well, … about the role of uh, dictators versus uh, democratically elected leaders. In particular, the, the the dictators having to only please a smaller group tend to be less eager to um, – and less likely to produce prosperity. In fact, the opposite is often the case. They run the economy to the ground but suck off enough goodies for them and their friends that they prefer that to a more general uh, type of prosperity. <laughs> Given that the political excuse me not the political given that the personal and financial and human costs of war uh, are so extensive uh, and spread very widely in in the in the modern era uh, in by, by the modern era I mean the last couple hundred years, are you surprised at how often the United States has gone to war as a democracy uh, with such a large base you know I understand dictators can go to war a lot um, They don't have to respond to the electorate. They just have to keep their buddies happy, who keep them in power. But in a democracy, the people are in some dimension, keep keep the leaders in power. Why has war been so common in the United States?
1: Well, as this book points out and the Dictator's Handbook, which you were referring to, uh, the earlier book also points out, democracies are not less prone to wage war than autocracies they are more selective about the wars they wage. Autocrats are willing to fight what I would describe as tough wars where their adversary is strong. Democrats, with a small d, uh, democracies, uh, tend to fight wars when going into the war, the expectation is that there's a very high probability of victory. And of course, sometimes that turns out not to be true, and then they have to try harder, and they do. Um, But they're not reluctant to fight wars. They like to fight very weak opponents, hence colonial and imperial expansion wars. Um, They like to um, fight when they are confident of winning. Ninety-three percent of the wars initiated by democratic countries are won by them. And only about 60 percent of the wars initiated by an autocrat. So there's some first-mover advantage. Autocrats, not 50-50. But there's very careful selection by democrats They fight
0: wars that they are going to succeed in, and success generally makes them popular. So for those of you listening at home who have not seen the book or looked at it, uh, we're going to proceed to uh, destroy the reputations here, or at least Bruce will, of uh, George Washington Abraham Lincoln. Uh, We'll look at Kennedy and Obama, and if we have time, we'll get to FDR. But these are all uh, leaders that you are very critical of, or at least – Take a revisionist approach. So let's start. Let's start with George Washington. Um, certainly an iconic figure to most Americans. Despite his uh, slave holdings, he's still widely respected. He is, in many ways, the hero of the musical Hamilton. After uh, Mr. Hamilton himself, I have to say I I shed a tear when he uh, sings one last time. When he steps down from the presidency, doesn't uh, run again, shows, creates a, a model for future leaders that puts us on the right path. So he has a reputation for great honesty. Um, he's a great general, and yet you're not quite so high on him. So what's your uh, view of Washington?
1: Well, let's take a step back to your list of wonderful things he did. He did not set a norm uh, to limit terms to two terms. After Andrew Jackson, until the Constitution was amended, every president who was alive at the end of a second term sought his party's nomination for a third term. Ulysses S. Grant did, Grover Cleveland did, Theodore Roosevelt did. Even Woodrow Wilson, near death at the end of his second term, tried to persuade the party to nominate him. They failed, it's true, until Franklin Roosevelt, but they all tried. Anyway, um, George Washington. Let's understand a little bit about who George Washington was, not the mythology, but the real person. Uh, George Washington was the son, um, not the first son, not the second son, down down the list. Uh, of a a father who owned 5,000 acres of land, including what today we know as Mount Vernon. So he was a prosperous man, not super wealthy, but prosperous. He died when George was just 11. Lawrence, George's older brother, inherited uh, Mount Vernon and a substantial part of the land. And Lawrence, who was idolized by George, became one of the top three investors in the Ohio Valley Company, which was a land speculation company. George, of course, was a land surveyor, Uh, although he had very little education. He was good with math, uh, and he could survey land. So he was a great asset to the Ohio Valley Company because he could go out and figure out the lay of the land. Uh, Part of his job was to make sure the French didn't take any of that land, Uh, He literally started the French and Indian War. I repeat, literally, uh, he uh, led a set of troops when he was 21 years old into the wilderness, came across some Frenchmen, uh, slaughtered them, took the leader of the group prisoner, one of his confederates, one of Washington's confederates, and assassinated the leader of the French, who was the French ambassador, carrying papers to make peace with the English. So great military leader is not clear either. Uh, Anyway, he was doing all of this to secure land. The king then, in 1763, issued a proclamation that colonists couldn't settle uh, in what was then defined as the Ohio Valley. That included much of Pennsylvania, Ohio, uh, uh, West Virginia, and so forth. And so George sent his agent, Mr. Crawford, uh, out into the Ohio Valley to secure land on the sly. And he, he told Crawford, if anybody stops you and asks, what are you doing? Because it wasn't legal to secure land. You tell him I'm out hunting because the king will be very upset if he knew what we were doing. And so he secured huge amounts of land. There was also land attached to his um, participation in the French and Indian War, a land grant that was supposed to be shared with his soldiers. He cheated his soldiers out of the better land, took the best land for himself. Uh, some of them threatened to sue him, he just quashed them. Um, and he amassed a fortune. Uh, his last position, just before becoming president, was uh, president of the Potomac Canal Company, uh, the Potomac Canal as we know it, <clears throat> from the Potomac River. What that canal did was bring Make it possible to bring produce from the Shenandoah Valley, which George owned, up uh, to the port in Alexandria, which had been built by Lawrence, uh, by the Ohio Valley Company, uh, and in which George had a direct interest, and ship goods out. So it was a very profitable undertaking, or so he thought it would be. Um, in the long run uh, for him. And that's what motivated him. Most people think of Washington as, besides great hero, which he certainly was, uh, as, you know, kind of a gentleman farmer. Uh, economists have estimated the worth uh, in real dollars adjusted for inflation, not appreciated, uh, of George Washington's estate in uh, contemporary terms. And it's about $20 billion. He is by far the wealthiest president. He's the 59th wealthiest person in American history. Three of the American founding fathers are in the list of the top 100 wealthiest Americans in all of history. Hancock, who was wealthier than Washington, made his money smuggling. Uh, And Ben Franklin, who was not quite as wealthy, made his money because he had a monopoly on the printing press these are the folks who led the revolution these were not the downtrodden these were not the oppressed these were people who stood to lose huge amounts of wealth because of the king's policies and so they fought a revolution which was by the way not very popular 60 percent of the colonists either were neutral or opposed to the revolution
0: so in terms of the land, uh, do you have a rough estimate of how much land uh, Washington held at the onset of the revolution, the outbreak of the revolution? My
1: recollection, it was around
0: 60,000 acres. And how big is – do you have any idea how big that is? I have no idea. <laughs> Shame I'm, a city, I'm a city boy. What
1: do I know? Um, he owned a lot of the Shenandoah Valley. He owned like a, a lot. lot of
0: West Virginia.
1: <laughs> <laughs> he, he, and, and mind you, he owned a lot of uh, what is now Pennsylvania. And mind you, much of this land, the, so it's not just how much he owned, it's where he owned it. He owned almost all of his land was on the banks of rivers and particularly where there were forks of two rivers. These were the main trading places. Indeed, uh, after the French-Indian War, he used this land grant. uh, He violated a statute a Virginia statute of 1712 by taking for himself much more riverfront land than any one individual was allowed to have because he knew that was where all the commerce would go. That was where the money was. And he also was very smart about his land Whereas other people bought and sold land, he bought and leased land. So he held the land in the family
0: uh, and collected income from its use. So it turns out, a quick Google search reveals that 60,000 acres is maybe about 100 square miles, which is not that much land. So either your acreage count is off or it's the quality of the land that matters. What I think is reliable is that he was worth a great deal of money, and most of his – of that wealth was certainly land-based, Correct. That is correct. So uh, the other – well, let's, let's put it this way. So let's just be clear here. For example,
1: Mount Vernon sits on the Potomac heading into Alexandria. The value is the port. It's the control over the shipment of goods. So it's not how much land. The port doesn't take very much land, but it's very valuable land. So,
0: so, had, so the question then is, um, had the revolution not occurred – if if things had gone forward, if there had been some kind of compromise over uh, taxation with some representation, uh, which was a real possibility, could have happened, right? Sure. You have a lot of interesting what-ifs in your book, literally, where chapters, sections where you call – that you call what-if, where you speculate about what if these decisions had been made differently. In particular, the key question seems to me is what if the, the founders um, who – many of us admire in, for different reasons, but uh, what if they had said, these aren't fighting words of the kings, these are just, we got. We should work this out. It's not worth death and destruction, and, uh, and independence isn't necessary. What would have happened to those land holdings that would have been so catastrophic for Washington and others?
1: So had there been, uh, had they negotiated a uh, a share of representation in parliament, the colonists represented about 25% of the total British population. So they had a legitimate claim to 25% of the seats in Parliament, which is, of course, a large amount. So there would be many ways to form political coalitions to control the government that would include the colonists or some portion of them. They weren't themselves united. And that would mean creating policies that would have been more acceptable to the colonists. Indeed, the British were not following terribly horrible policies. They wanted to tax the colonists who were costing them a fortune to defend. Um, this hardly seemed outrageous. It is true that uh, in 1297, King uh, Edward I signed a confirmation of the charter that said that uh, you couldn't tax without the people being represented. Um, but they could have easily been represented Uh, And then they could have changed the policies. If you read the Declaration of Independence carefully, you discover that the two things, two big grievances that were driving the revolution were that the king was imposing conditions on the colonists' acquisition of land. And even worse, and this is a quotation, he was turning our frontier over to the Indian savages. Uh, and the Indian savages are then described as knowing no other way of doing things except to murder women and children. Um, surprising that this made the declaration. Uh, so those considerations of what is the balance of the interests of the king between the Indian tribes and the colonists would have looked different if there were, a, if there were representation that they could have negotiated uh, but they didn't, because they didn't want that. They, they wanted to get rid of the English. Now, they accused the English of tyranny. Uh, at the end of uh, the chapter on Washington, just do a little graph that shows uh, the current best estimates available of per capita income each year in the colonies uh, and in Canada. Now, Canada has some serious disadvantages, much worse weather and much less densely populated and so forth, but they track very closely during the time that George III is alive. They actually depart well after he dies in 1820. So it doesn't look uh, as if the colonists either did vastly better once they got rid of the English or that the Canadians did particularly badly when they kept the English because they didn't they didn't get their independence till 1860, so there's just not much evidence for this claim of tyranny.
0: Well, and would, they could have I settled would, it. I would respond to that by saying that monetary well-being is not the only thing that a person cares about. But I will defend. True, but we don't. We but we don't have much data on other things. We, in any event, don't have any evidence
1: that the civil liberties of the colonists were any worse than the civil liberties of the Canadian colonists.
0: Or that they were so bad in general. I I have to concede your point in the following way, that when we think about the uh, revolution in its most um, rosy view, less uh, venal and uh, self-interested, as you're suggesting, that rosy view is all about uh, taxation with representation, the tax on tea, the uh, British soldiers staying in people's houses which I, I can't imagine happened quartering of soldiers is that big a problem and we look upon those with with great admiration because it seems to suggest that the colonists were so passionate about liberty that they were willing to die just to avoid a crummy little tax on tea without representation and the quartering of soldiers you know it was not as you I think it Forget the economics, the financial side, it was not an oppressive regime in, in any sense uh, the the colonies those, by yeah, those were
1: not the things those were it, not the things the war was about
0: um, nope. the other part I thought was so informative is you do forget how when a nation is being um, sculpted literally created out of um, border skirmishes with uh, with Indians and And the opportunity for financial speculation is quite extraordinary, and um, I salute you for reminding us of that. It's really – it's important.
1: And it's not to take away from many of the great things that George Washington did in, as you put it, sculpting a government. He did lots of very good things, maybe at the top of the list, bringing Alexander Hamilton into the government to bring a sensible political economy perspective to how to create a new state. It's just what drove him was not liberty. It was personal gain. uh, And that seemed to be the characteristic of most of the founding fathers who were very wealthy people, even the Adamses. John and John Quincy's net worth is almost identical. (laughs) Yes, almost identical to George W. and George Herbert Walker Bush's net worth.
0: So, Please, you know, in, in reading these discussions in the book of motivation, I couldn't help but think about um, Bruce Shandell's Bootlegger and Baptist theory and the role that self deception plays. So, the Bootlegger and Baptist theory is is that you know, often the things that motivate policies or ourselves are it's always an idealistic one, and then a not so idealistic one, and they tend to we tend to forget about the not so idealistic one. And as you pointed out in the beginning of the conversation, George Washington probably maybe kind of saw himself as a noble leader of this fight for liberty and maybe didn't think so much about his personal stake, at least consciously. What I wanted to ask you then, if you're going to push the view that he was conscious of it, is there any – I didn't notice in the book any private correspondence or direct evidence where he bemoaned – um The situation with respect to his personal wealth or did i miss that
1: well uh, he's very critical of the people who criticize him for uh, the fight in the ohio valley that leads to the war uh, and earlier uh, where they're accusing him and, and the ohio company of going into the area for venial purposes for their own gain uh, rather than for security concerns, and he's deeply offended uh, in his writings. Uh, people would have thought that, that he went for more than one reason, and yet, of course, he, here he was surveying land the whole time and, uh, and, and doing the things that would satisfy the king's order of the day to gain more land. So yeah, there, it, it is there. I, maybe you did miss it. Um, there's Not
0: a lot. I don't see it. I don't see it. That part I noticed. I don't see it on the eve of the revolution uh, that he's talking about these issues. Is it because it's embarrassing what you're arguing, or well, well, maybe we,
1: maybe Alistair and I were trying to be too kind. Uh, So Washington uh, wore very fine clothing which he had made for him in England. He had the finest furniture which he imported from England. He had the most expensive. Uh, carriage, which he imported from England, and how did he secure the uh, credit for these purchases, He, uh, the collateral he provided was his stepchildren's wealth, not his. This was a man who was not shy to take advantage of other people's money to make sure that his wasn't at risk. He kept track of every penny that he spent. Now, we didn't go into how he paid for all the goodies that he bought for himself, uh, but these are you know, relatively well-known facts. Um, our objective was you know, not to be quite that harsh.
0: Now let's move on to Abraham Lincoln. So um, oh. Lincoln has – I think he's in the top three. Uh, most people would rank him as the, one of the top three, if not the number one. Greatest president of all time. Uh, a number of us have noticed as we've gotten older that 750,000 people did die in uh, in the Civil War. It perhaps could have been avoided. It could have been prosecuted differently. Um, and you make both of those criticisms of him. It does take a per- – Someone like myself, born in 1954, it does take a while to learn that he didn't fight the war to end slavery. Um, So you can't really give him credit for that. But for strategic reasons during the war, he did encourage the end of slavery. He did do things that led to the end of slavery. So um, he is a complicated figure. But you're a little – again, as with Washington, you're a little bit harsher on him, certainly on those first two counts of why He provoked uh, the war itself and how he prosecuted the war. So make the case.
1: Well, let me start by saying that most people accept as common wisdom that the ends do not justify the means. And yet we forgive Lincoln uh, because his ends wound up being good. He got rid of slavery. Now let's look at who Mr. Lincoln was. Prior to the mid-1850s, he was, of course, a very successful lawyer, a very wealthy lawyer, uh, who was reluctant. He was opposed to slavery personally. He, he had grown up in an abolitionist-oriented household, but he was reluctant to do anything about slavery. As he put it, God will take care of it in God's good time, um, and he just went along. Then in 1855... He corresponded with the family lawyer. I think the name was George Robertson, uh, who was also a friend. And uh, this this family lawyer had been very actively involved in passing the Missouri Compromise um, in, eight, in 1820. Explain what that uh, is. Uh, so the Missouri Compromise was a deal that said, that the country would remain balanced every time there was a territory that came in as a free territory, there would be a territory that would come in as a state, as a as a slave state, uh, to maintain the power balance between uh, the slave, pro-slave, and anti-slave parts of the country. So Lincoln wrote a letter to this man, uh, which I, a letter I must say I've not seen quoted before, uh, in which he says, "The peaceful time." For the extinction of slavery, sorry, the time for the peaceful extinction of slavery is itself extinct. That is, slavery can't be gotten rid of by peaceful means. Then in 1857, the Supreme Court hands down the Dred Scott decision, which says that Mr. Scott, uh, a, an African-American uh, s- a slave... Um, who had been taken into free territory and so sued on the grounds that he became free when he was taken into free territory, uh, lost, and the court ruled that um, African Americans are not citizens, cannot be citizens, are incapable of being citizens, uh, and that they are property. And uh, due process has to work. If I take uh, a bundle of flour into a ter- free territory to move there, I still own the flour; Nobody can take it away from me. Uh, and if I bring wagons with me, nobody can take my wagons. And if I bring slaves, nobody can take my slaves. And in response to Dred Scott, Lincoln was fundamentally changed in my view. Uh, so he gives in 1858 the House Divided speech uh, in accepting the Republican nomination for the uh, Illinois Senate seat.
0: That speech is the very key line. Sorry? That speech has the key
1: line. Yes, a house divided against itself cannot stand, and it has the key line that the country cannot survive half slave and half free. So at this point, Lincoln understands that it has to be all one or all the other, uh, and he basically declares war on the South, Uh, Stephen Douglas' opponent says as much, he says Mr. Lincoln is calling for the extermination of the South. Lincoln standing in the audience when this is said, he doesn't respond. And he has now adopted the position that the way for him to become president is to divide the Democratic Party on the slavery issue. And for him to be the advocate of abolition at this point which is the position of the Republican Party. It's basically what the Republican Party was founded for. And so he poses a question to Douglas. Douglas gives the answer that ensures his election to the Senate and ensures, as Mr. Lincoln had carefully calculated, that it would divide the party in the 1860 election. Lincoln had been advised not to give the House divided speech because it would cost him the prospect of winning the Senate. And his response was, "Yes, but it will make me president." And it did. So in eighteen sixty we have an election in which the Democrats are divided between Stephen Douglas, who is viewed at the time as a moderate on the slavery question. Uh, John Breckinridge, who is the sitting vice President of the United States, James Buchanan's vice President, and is uh, very pro-slavery, and Bell, uh, Senator from Tennessee, who just wants the issue to go away one way. He just wants the country to continue. Lincoln wins the election with under 40% of the popular vote. He is then presented with numerous opportunities to avoid secession and avoid war through compromise. He is presented, for example, with the Crittenden Amendments as a proposal. The Crittenden Amendments essentially said, the Dred Scott decision said the Missouri Compromise was unconstitutional. Uh, We can't tell territories that they have to be free or they have to be slave. It's uh, not the way it works. Um, It's up to them. Um, And a bit more complicated than that, the Crittenden Amendment says, well, what we will do is we will freeze things in place. Those states that are now slave will remain slave. Those that are free will remain free and so forth. Lincoln likes the Crittenden Amendments, thinks it's a pretty good idea. He turns to the Republican Party leadership, party operatives, and says, what do you think? They say, no, this is what we got elected for, so we, we have to stick by what our constituents want. And so he rejects the Crittenden Amendments. The South is deeply divided over secession. The votes are not straightforward. They're not overwhelming. Uh, but Lincoln simply refuses to, to budge, and this makes him president. And, of course, at this point, going back to the House Divided speech, he realizes that the only way the country can be all free as opposed to all slave is to get rid of the South because then he can amend the Constitution will have the votes. With the South in the country, he doesn't have the votes. Uh, And this seemed to have been his agenda after Dred Scott came down in 1857. It was about what will work to make me president and what will get me reelected.
0: Couldn't you reinterpret that, though? I I can interpret it as the Dred Scott case was so offensive to him that he became uh, galvanized to rid the United States of this terrible scourge. So one can make that argument.
1: Against it, we have to realize that uh, Lincoln, when he was briefly in the House of Representatives for one term, uh, introduced a bill, uh, a fugitive slave law for the District of Columbia, which had not had a fugitive slave law. That is a law in which people could come in and if somebody had escaped, Truck them back to their owner out of D.C. Uh, so in, now, this was a complicated bill, but there he was. It was the sp- he was the sponsor. It was deeply offensive to abolitionists. Uh, and in this earlier period, he took almost no legal cases to defend slaves, although Illinois was a free state, uh, because he didn't want to be seen as fighting the fugitive slave laws in other parts of the country, which many of which were given to us by George Washington. Um, So it's hard to make the case that it was that Dred Scott offended him so much as that Dred Scott opened to him the opportunity. He could see now a path to the presidency. We should also note in 1848, when he was in the Congress, Commenting on the Mexican-American War, he gave a speech in which he described as a most sacred right, the right of any people to revolutionize, as he put it, to revolutionize against their government in any place where they could form a majority against the government and overthrow their government. That is, he had advocated secession. He was doing what was convenient.
0: So why he may have
1: believed it. I don't say he didn't. It doesn't really matter whether he believed it or not. What matters is his actions were designed to make him president. Solving slavery was quite secondary.
0: Let's say then that the Crittenden Amendment didn't pass, compromises fail, the South secedes. Why did he not tolerate that? What was it, Why was it in his interest to uh, – plunge the country into a civil war certainly there was a widespread belief that it would be short and easily won and you can and you argue that it should have been shorter and more easily won than it was we'll get to that in a second yeah. but why didn't he just um say okay um is, you know given that speech but he could say well it's not a house divided anymore the north's a new country this South's a new country again you could most people would argue, well, he, he wanted to end slavery. He didn't want to be too public about it. It wasn't widely popular, uh, despite our romance about anti-slavery. So he didn't want to take a chance. But now with secession, it gave him the opportunity to do that. Why was that self-interested to provoke and, and proceed with the war?
1: Well, it certainly was a mistake in my view. He, he should have let the South go and then put an economic embargo on it. And the individual slates would have come slinking back pleading to re-enter the union, and then he could have dictated the terms. But um, tolerating secession uh, was popular with a significant portion of, of the voters who elected him in 1860. And not with all of them, there, the, the Republicans were, were somewhat divided. There was a group of elite Republicans, the Horace Greeley, for example— uh, who thought, well, good riddance to them. Uh, but Lincoln was not among those people. And more importantly, to go back to the beginning of this conversation, war helps presidents get reelected and peace and prosperity, unfortunately, does not. He would have known that by then because the country had been involved in the revolution, of course, in the War of 1812, which got Madison reelected, who would, otherwise would have been unpopular and so on. Uh, and the Indian Wars were very popular. So he probably had worked out this is the path to re-election. We forget after Andrew Jackson until Lincoln, no president had been re-elected. I can rattle off the names for you if you like. There's a lot of them, and none were re-elected. Lincoln was very keen to be in power and stay in power. And war was a path to doing that successfully. And of course he did get re-elected. He was very unpopular. Uh, as late as September eighteen sixty four, and then when Atlanta fell, uh, the arguments by McClellan's campaign were were dead in the water because McClellan's argument was we should make a deal with the South, and there was no longer a need because victory was now at hand.
0: McClellan being his challenger in the eighteen sixty four election, um, is that is that correct, or was he primary? Was he a primary? No, challenge?
1: he no, they, they didn't have primaries. Yeah. Um, he wasn't a Republican
0: challenger. He was a Democrat challenger. He was a Democrat.
1: He was, all, he was from New York. And interestingly, Lincoln invented the absentee ballot for the 1864 election so that soldiers could vote because they were overwhelmingly pro-Lincoln. But tragically, the New York delegation of soldiers, their ballots arrived late. They were. I'm sure it
0: was coincidence. Yeah, Bad postal uh, yeah no doubt. Um, it is worth noting and I think often forgotten how many American presidents in the beginning of the republic were either uh, had had served in war in a in a leadership capacity, um, and and I and it reminded me of um, of Winston Churchill, who was extremely eager to get into the Boer War as a young man because he knew that without some heroics uh, that he was unlikely to be a. Um, a leader. And he was very blunt about that. He, he, yeah. he wrote about it explicitly, basically. I have to risk my life if I want to. Uh, he, he at least was honest about it. Um, he, he wasn't a coward, I don't think. But he certainly was willing to. He was a better way to say it. I think he was pretty excited there was a war for him to get into uh, because he saw that as the road to political um, greatness. And uh, perhaps Lincoln did as well. Now, let's talk about the, the war itself. He certainly – two aspects of it I want to talk about. One I found extremely interesting, which was your point about having rivals and uh, non-yes men or maybe men, no men in your uh, cabinet. Mm -hmm. And he gets a lot of praise, Lincoln does, because he had such a diverse cabinet. Uh, He gets a lot of sympathy because his generals were so uneager to um, tangle with the enemy. As you point out, Richmond was 100 miles away. Uh, he couldn't take it for four years, five years. What, uh, what did he do wrong in the prosecution of the war and talk about his cabinet as a part of that? Well, he did almost everything wrong. Uh, so
1: um, in the book, we, we take a, uh, an academic study by Scott Bennett and uh, Alan Stamm that looks at a bunch of variables and how they affect the duration of war. They didn't include the Civil War in their study. We take their variables and apply them to the Union and the Confederacy. Uh, They're predicting how long war should last. And so we apply their model to how long the Civil War should have lasted. And the answer that comes out from the statistics is approximately six months, a little bit less, as opposed to four years. What was the problem? And why should it have lasted for such a short time? Well, the problem was that Lincoln didn't have a parade of generals coming through the Oval Office to discuss with him, this is how I would approach the war. This would be my strategy. Instead, he did what was convenient. At first, he turned to Winfield Scott, hero of the Mexican-American War, a former failed uh, candidate for the presidency, and an old man uh, who was out of touch with the military skills of the day, but was popular. So he picked somebody who was popular rather than competent. Then he turned to General McClelland, uh, and McClelland was well known as a great parade general, but not a fighter. He could have brought in the Shermans and the Grants and so on and said, how are you going to conduct this war? How can we get to Richmond quickly? Uh, But he didn't. And that was just incompetence. Um, then we have to look as well uh, at who he was fighting and what did they think the war was going to be like to reinforce the notion of incompetence. The United States, including the South, had a population of 31 million. 21 or 22 million of that population lived in the North The remaining roughly 9 million lived in the South, and approximately half of those were slaves, so they were a fifth column. They were people who were going to be pro-union. So the South is fighting 21 million people with about 4.5 million people. The South grew very few uh, food crops. They grew cash crops, cotton and tobacco. Uh, They didn't produce munitions. They should have been easy to defeat. Then you look at somebody like Jefferson Davis, president of the Confederacy. Jefferson Davis had been Franklin Pierce's minister of war. He was a West Point graduate. He was a veteran of the Mexican War. This was a man of great experience and education in military matters. He was horrified when he was asked to become president of the Confederacy because he thought the Confederacy had no chance of winning. John Breckinridge, the vice president of the United States, the only member of the United States Senate, which he later returned to, uh, who was convicted of treason. He also thought the South has no chance to win. We have to find a way out of this. Lincoln neither looked for a way out nor looked for a good way to conduct the war. He just was, as people at the time saw him, incompetent. Then there is the question of his cabinet. So we are told that he had a cabinet of rivals and that he managed these opponents brilliantly. We should know two things. First, uh, from the perspective of rational decision-making, it is not prudent to fill a cabinet or whatever with rivals. What is prudent is yes-men a
0: beautiful contrarian position, because yeah, right? everyone would say the opposite. Go ahead. It's a lovely result.
1: Uh, we should give credit, Randall Calvert. Um, so what Calvert shows is that when somebody who always disagrees with you, say George Ball and Lyndon Johnson in the Vietnam War, continues to disagree with you, you don't learn anything from their disagreeing. But when somebody who has always agreed with you, say Clark Clifford in the Vietnam War, says to you, you know, this, this, you're making a mistake. You're not doing this right. They disagree with you. Now there's information. Ah, this is somebody who thinks the way I do and is telling me I'm wrong. Maybe I need to reassess. So there's a good reason to be surrounded with yes-men. Now, Lincoln understood that. Uh, against the current popular view, um, I quote, His two closest advisors, John Hay and John Nicolay, who comment on who Mr. Lincoln wanted to have and did have in his cabinet. They say, there are those who say that Mr. Lincoln will have some Southern gentlemen in his cabinet. First, we must ask, how would that work? Will the Southern gentlemen give in to Mr. Lincoln? Will Mr. Lincoln give in to the Southern gentlemen, or will they fight all the time? No, it is his mature, considered opinion that he shall have in in the cabinet his closest friends, the best and the brightest. That's not quite the quotation because I haven't memorized it, but it's very close. His closest friends, the best and the brightest. So now we look at who was in the cabinet. William Seward. So Seward is pointed to as the exemplar of the rival. Well, of course, he was a rival in the sense that he ran against Lincoln for the party nomination. And he failed uh, on the third ballot. It was itself corrupt, but we'll put that aside. Um, But how did they differ? Well, Seward was more abolitionist than Lincoln. Seward was... Lincoln was pro-immigrant. Seward was more pro-immigrant. Um, these were not people who were rivals in the sense of their beliefs. They were just you know, political rivals, as Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama were. Uh, and then they worked together in the government. They had basically the same views. It was not a cabinet of rivals. It was a cabinet of yes-men, and that's fine. And we'll look at Salman Chase. Salmon Chase was Secretary of the Treasury. Why was he there? So during the nominating convention in Chicago, uh, in a building called the Wigwam, uh, which Lincoln packed with his supporters with counterfeit tickets, um, Lincoln, the the mayor of Chicago, who was the uh, campaign manager for Lincoln in Illinois, turned to the campaign manager for Salmon Chase, who was doing better than Lincoln in the nominating contest, Uh, And said to him, my man will give your – my boy will give your boy anything he wants if you give us your votes. They gave Lincoln their votes, and Salman Chase became secretary of the treasury. This was just a political deal. These were not rivals in the sense of people who had fundamentally different views. Those were not entering the cabinet.
0: So that should have helped him, right, according to the Calvert, in your view of how – Yes, yeah. But they they apparently didn't –
1: convince him that, for example, he needed to have generals walking through. None of these guys were military experts. That you want to say anything, their, their strong suit.
0: Do you want to say anything on behalf of Jefferson Davis? Um, he stands out in your book as kind of a uh, a, a somewhat um, altruistic figure. It's a cause that we're not sympathetic to, uh, which is slavery, in this, or at least the autonomy of the South. But as you – I think you quote him in the book saying how he – Felt, I think, something along the lines If he felt like he, was going, he had been given a death sentence when he accepted the presidency of the Confederacy. Was he self-interested, or was he a little more um, uh, idealistic? Well, he was self-interested. He certainly wasn't an altruist. Uh, Why did he take the ter- job? Of, a job that he expected to lose in six months? So right? he, yes, he, he thought the South would lose the war. On the other hand,
1: he got to be the president of a country, something that would have never happened Otherwise, uh, and if we look at his history, uh, he was imprisoned briefly after the war. He was freed. He made a fortune. He did just fine. Um, He couldn't have known that in advance, but what he could know was that the South ought to lose the war easily, but they're going up against the incompetent Mr. Lincoln. Maybe that will work out. We have to realize it's very hard today for people— to put themselves in the minds of people at the time, Lincoln at the time was perceived by his contemporaries as a well-intentioned, nice guy, humorous, entertaining, but not sto- a serious person. Great storyteller. And not competent. A great storyteller. So Jefferson Davis saw an opportunity, and the same for Breckenridge. He saw an opportunity to be a big wig. Uh, you know, the big fish in the little pond.
0: You want to say anything about Robert E. Lee? Uh, a lot of people would say he's the reason. It's not Lincoln's incompetence, it's just Robert e. Lee is one of the greatest, considered maybe he's not, but he's considered one of the greatest generals of all time. Did he oh. you give him any credit for the duration of the war? Oh, Whatever you want to call it. Uh, a credit's not the right uh, word, but maybe. But uh, I understand what
1: you mean. I, I take nothing away from Robert E. Lee, a descendant of two signatories of the Declaration of Independence. Uh, very incestuous government uh, Lee was a a great general, handed a very bad hand. he understood he had a bad hand, and so yes, he certainly deserves credit. You know it, the length of the war is not determined by one person alone, but the war statistically should have been a lot shorter, so it might be that the six month estimate it uh, doesn't take into account the difference in quality of generalship, although, as it turns out, that is a variable in the model. Um, so maybe it should have been a year, but there was no way it should have been four years.
0: The, the, it's, I mean, it's a the, terrible tragedy, and, and you do, as you – to make it clear for listeners who haven't read the book, certainly in terms of the outcome, freeing the outcome, whether it was intended or not, of freeing the slaves is a wonderful thing, and uh, – whether it would have happened peacefully, uh, without 750,000 people dying, and whether, under whatever circumstances it did occur, would that have been worthwhile? Of course, you know, to give you the full uh, scope of the book, you really should have had a "what if" chapter. If all of them made good decisions and so had been less self-interested, so you know, we wouldn't have rebelled against the British. The British would have ended slavery for the United States in 18. 18- Twenty was when was it?
1: Yes, eighteen twenty-seven or eighteen thirty, right around there. The, right? The, the misery of the American Civil War it was later in the Americas for the British than it was in Britain.
0: And then eighteen sixty, instead of being the onset of a of a bloodbath of uh, horrific proportions, could have been something similar to the liberation of Canada. Uh, so, just thought it through. And, and without Jim Crow, <laughs> yeah. Oh, huge thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now we're skipping over 1812. You have a chapter on Madison. We're skipping over FDR, uh, chapter on World War II and and uh, FDR's uh, hesitance to, to prosecute the war. In this case, being his willingness to be reelected. And we're skipping over the chapter I found the most painful, which is uh, the painting of LBJ as something of a um, of a tragic hero for willing to his willingness to pay for the war in Vietnam. As, as it went, rather than pushing it on to the future, uh, it's hard for me to read that. I've, I have so little respect for LBJ, but uh, we'll put that to the side.
1: Uh, I want to. Sk- well, let <laughs> me just comment that you disagree with some of the policies, such as, I assume, the Medicare policy.
0: No, um, no, no. Actually, the- that's nothing to do with my distaste for the man. It's, it's, his, huh. it's his endless ambition and oh, well, ruthlessness, a- which you uh, seem to have— Uh, soft-pedaled in your treatment of him relative to the other characters in the in the drama
1: because the big story for him is that when he becomes president on the first night in the white house he says he's made a lot of mistakes and i intend to use the time given to me to correct them and he does Uh, and it is true that he is ruthless in correcting them he is ruthless to uh his colleagues in the Senate from the South, uh, He is, he's ruthless all the time. He's, he's, he's not a nice man, but, he, but he, he is doing what he believes is right and what most of us also believe was right. And that's the, the virtue, including the introduction of the lottery which, to replace selective service, which cost him the support of Democrats in the Northeast whose sons had high-risk lottery numbers that is they were likely to be drafted and sent to Vietnam. They stopped supporting him, and he knew that would be the consequence. But it was, as he, as the acronym for the system indicated, it was a fair system. He yeah. was ruthless, we don't deny
0: that. Well, I'll be open-minded about about his post his presidential years. And he years. did
1: pay for the war.
0: Right. So, uh, obviously, I haven't read all the Caro um, – all the Carroll yeah. volumes aren't out yet, yeah, so what can you do? Um, let's move. Let's move to the last uh, section of the book, which is a comparison of two presidents who drew lines uh, with respect to um, aggression on the part of, of enemies of the United States, and what motivated those lines. And that would be JFK in the Cuban Missile Crisis, and Barack Obama in the JFK being John F. Kennedy in the Cuban Missile Crisis and Barack Obama in the Middle East and the entanglement of Iraq, Iran, Syria, and Russia. uh, Try to give us a quick sketch of what those two decisions were and how politics were decisive rather than something else. They both faced major threats to security. They both
1: did what they believed would please their constituents in JFK's case. He believed he would be impeached and he would lose the Democrats in the House if he did not take a tough stance against the Soviets, even though by his own estimate, the risk of nuclear war was one third. So being impeached was viewed by him as having a lower expected value than nuclear war. He gambled on the country to secure himself in the presidency. And in taking a tough stance, he got the Soviets to back down. Barack Obama came into the presidency having promised to withdraw the United States from Iraq and to a lesser extent from Afghanistan. That's what his constituents wanted. It was completely foreseeable that withdrawal from Iraq would mean a Sunni-Shia civil war. It would mean that Iran would step in with military troops into Iraq to defend the Shia government, and that Iran would become the preeminent political power in the region. I say this is entirely foreseeable, because in my 2009 book, "The Predictioneers Game," in the penultimate chapter called "Dare to be Embarrassed," I predicted that. Um, before I knew who was elected as a matter of fact. Anyway. Obama did what his constituents wanted, and what that meant was that he had this throwdown with Bashar al-Assad in Syria. If you use chemical weapons, it's a game changer. He used chemical weapons. The United Nations confirmed that chemical weapons had been used, and Obama dithered, We don't know who, maybe it was Putin, maybe it was Kerry. Somebody came up with the idea that Assad should give up his chemical weapons, which he had denied he had, uh, and that would solve the problem. Assad agreed to such an arrangement. The French president, François Hollande, said, great, we should have a UN resolution in the Security Council now that authorizes the use of force later if he fails to follow the timeline that we've all, including him, that Assad has agreed to. The Russians say, no way, Obama backs down, takes a weaker resolution. What is the consequence? Putin now knows that anything costlier than pushing hard uh, for a resolution in the Security Council, even though it would fail, uh, and pushing Assad hard, is a freebie, that that the United States is not going to take any action. And so he now knows that he can go somewhere and expand his interest, and he goes, of course, into Crimea and does that. Uh, the signals of weakness pleased Obama's constituents. He did what he told them he would do. He did the single most important thing a president can do. He got reelected, uh, and it didn't seem to have great regard for the long-term conditions that this was going to create. So it greatly destabilized the situation in Iraq, which has spread elsewhere, uh, and so forth. Even the Egyptian overthrow of Mubarak, which we may see is a good thing, though, in the end it winds up uh, with another dictator. What was the precipitating event is President Obama's Afghan speech in which he said that he's going to cut foreign aid to Egypt in half. This was on the back pages of the New York Times, but front page in Cairo. And the generals then understood that Mubarak no longer was sufficiently important to the United States government uh, to warrant the money, which is, of course, how they made their living. And so they sat on their hands, looked for an alternative. They eventually found it in El Sisi and so forth. Uh, But in both cases, JFK in the Cuban Missile Crisis and Obama in the Middle East and Crimea, he was doing what the people who elected him wanted him to do. But he wasn't doing what he said he was going to be the president of all Americans. He was doing what not what was good for the country or we, the people, more broadly in the long run, but what was good for his electoral prospects.
0: And it worked. So, so let me disagree with that a little bit. I, I don't, not easy, easy for me to defend President Obama. He's not one of my favorite presidents. It doesn't make my top 10. But you could argue that his mistake was, was making that statement, not what he did in response. And the reason I say that is that I don't really s- – in certain issues, let's take the um, the pipeline uh, that is still, I think, up in the air after whatever number of years it's been. I saw that decision as being very much catering to his core consti- – I'm going to say his core constituency, the people who are passionate about him. There weren't many Americans passionate about intervening in Syria – after serious use of chemical weapons, Democrat or Republican. I feel like there's a, you talk about war fatigue or Middle East fatigue on the part of of Democrat voters who had supported Obama, but I think there was a great deal on both parties. And had he not made that statement about the red line, which I, I don't know whether it was a good idea or not, but had he not made that statement, I don't think things would have turned out any that much differently. There's just not a lot of public support for um Adventuring in the Middle East these days, after the failure—or at least apparent failure—of recent adventures there. So, so I think you misunderstand our argument. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. So our argument is conditional
1: on his having made that statement. The failure to be resolved about it, as JFK had been, it was also perhaps foolish for JFK to make the, make the statements he made. I'll come back to that. So conditional on his having made the statement about the game changer, he created a destabilization that was dangerous. Would it have been different had he not made the game changer statement? It would have been the smarter thing, in my opinion. You don't make game changer statements unless you are committed to carrying out the threat. He was not. So I don't disagree that, it would, that the big mistake was to make the, the statement, but we, the chapter picks about it's been made. In the same way with the Cuban Missile Crisis, everybody who was an expert on the subject at the time understood that Soviet missiles in Cuba had not fundamentally changed the security or threat to the United States or is a term I don't like, that the balanced power had not shifted because the amount of time it took for a missile to get from the Soviet Union to the United States was shorter than our response capability. So the fact President they were in Kennedy took the risk so of nuclear war for political reasons, and Obama made the game changer statement, not, for, not thought through because not something his constituents would have wanted, and then backed off of it to satisfy his constituents. And that created havoc and a a power vacuum uh, in the Middle East. I happen to have thought at the time, I wrote about this at the time, that it was very foolish to go into Libya where there was no prospect of creating a civil society. And that if the United States and its allies at that time in 2011 were going to intervene anywhere where there was a prospect of a civil society coming out of it, it was Syria. At that time, it would not have taken very much. There wasn't an ISIS threat, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But he chose not to because that's not what public opinion wanted. And that's really part of the theme of the book. Is the job of the president to be a politician who follows opinion or to be a leader who shapes opinion? Obama didn't shape opinion. He followed it.
0: You make the same criticism of FDR in the okay, entry into World War II, yeah. um, but let me let me let's let's step back now and let's turn to some of your recommendations for what might reduce um, the eagerness of, of presidents to go to war. But I do want to mention these are two cases: FDR in thirty-nine, excuse me, thirty-eight, and um, I got the no forty, excuse me, nineteen forty. Right. Election of 1940. And yes, Obama, when he and ran Obama against and, the
1: genuinely unexperienced non-politician, Wendell Wilkie, the media seemed to have forgotten that. Sorry.
0: Right. Uh, but but here's cases where where presidents were at least hesitant to go to war. Yes, because the American people weren't enthusiastic about it. But that seems to be not a bad rule of thumb for, for presidents. It would be a kind of a if that were the future. Uh, of American foreign policy, that they would only go to war when the American people were were, were solidly behind it. I think we'd be in fewer wars, and maybe we'd be better off on average going forward. I don't know; hard to know, of course. But uh, respond to that, and then talk about ways you suggest but, that we might make these. So decisions I absolutely better. agree with that, but with the caveat: when public
1: opinion is informed about the consequences of going to war and the consequences of not going to war. They were not informed about that adequately by Franklin Roosevelt until we were attacked and went into the war. So the final chapter of the book addresses this problem. How could we develop procedures, not requiring legislation particularly, procedures that would ensure that the public were better informed about Three costs of war. The job of the president to make the argument for war, and the public's job is to evaluate whether the argument for war is worth the cost. War's co- cost in terms of lost lives, lost opportunities, and lost money and time opportunity. Suppose we had a council of foreign policy advisors whose job it was not to pontificate about alternative policies, but to use well-developed, peer-reviewed, careful studies, algorithms, statistical analyses, models of what affects the costs of war in life, what affects the costs of war in uh, dollars, what affects the costs of war uh, in terms of the Oregon opportunities by losing productive population and so forth and used previously agreed to set of procedures, much as the weather bureau may have 10 or 15 different models. And they look at the consensus in those models to predict the weather. We would have a bunch of models predicting these costs. The public would be told, ah, if the United States were to decide to defend the Philippines, and Scarborough Shoal in the South China Sea. These would be the expected cost. Then, a president who believes that these are accurate estimates and is trying to persuade the public that the cost is lower will be in a difficult re-election position when the costs are much higher, as these estimates would suggest. And the loyal opposition will step up and say, wait a minute, these things are very costly. There are votes for us to gain by disagreeing. If these, if, if these cost estimates greatly exceed what the president is saying, we should hook ourselves to those because the president will lose votes when it turns out to be this costly. And in anticipation of that, the president will be more cautious about military adventures. Now it will become the case that... Falling inside the cost estimates is going to be a political boon for the president, and falling
0: outside them is going to suggest a lack of competence. Well, that doesn't excite me much, although before we started recording, you mentioned this could be a private opportunity. It doesn't have to be through the government. It doesn't have to be official. Yeah, I don't
1: need the government to be doing this. So my, that's my an notion interesting is- idea.
0: I really like that a lot. The, but to suggest that that these people on this committee are going to be um, peer reviewing and modeling in the abstract—they're going to be prone to the same political incentives.
1: you ah, no, they're, they're
0: in not going to be modeling. They're not going to be peer reviewing. No. They're going to be using previously yeah, published they'll peer-reviewed yeah, studies. They'll—they'll they'll be able to say studies show, and they'll be able to fill in the blank. I suspect. Yeah, but in the idea ways. is not that
1: this will be a government agency. The idea is that this will be academics who are skilled at these things, who simply are. Publicizing here's the case. If the United States went into the South China Sea, if the United States went into Saudi Arabia, if the United States, and so
0: on, what would be the cost? I think that's and a good idea. And the president's job is what would be the benefit? I think it's a good idea, and I do think that Bruce Brandon and Mosquito would be one of the people on that committee, so you are perhaps self-interested in your assessment of this idea. You want to comment? I am
1: happy to not be on any of these committees. <laughs> I'm too old. Okay.
0: Um, let's of course, if
1: the party drafts me. <laughs> you'll,
0: you'll, you'll suffer and – yeah. Um, or at least see your work used to be happy, I think, either way. Uh, let's, <laughs> let's finish with the financial side of this, which I thought was extremely interesting, and I haven't thought enough about it until I read your book. I found it very provocative. A lot of economists, I think, would argue that wartime – it is uh, a time for debt financing, a time to borrow money because it's a one time, unusual event, it's just like buying a house. It would be foolish to have to rely on current levels of expenditure, It'd be foolish to have to lower our consumption so dramatically, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and yet, you suggest, and I agree, uh, at least tentatively, that having war is financed by current taxation, or at least more transparently, would reduce the um, likelihood of, say, spending a trillion dollars or more on Iraq with a return that does not seem to be commensurate with that expenditure. Exactly. I mean, the difficulty I, – I have no problem with the reasoning of economists,
1: except that they are not political economists. The costs of war should be thought of as a political factor more than an economic factor. The consequence, so for example, if we look at, as you've mentioned, the Iraq war cost approximately a trillion dollars. By the way, the statistical estimates would have put the cost at about 400 billion, way below what it actually cost, but eight times what Donald Rumsfeld said it would cost. Um, people need to be able to assess what they are spending and what they are getting. So I think of it more as. A purchase. I am purchasing something. Uh, it's not a house. Uh, and it has immediate consequences that need to be paid for because otherwise it changes the political, not the economic, but the political dynamics of the country in the future. So George W. Bush put the Iraq War on a credit card. He didn't pay for it, he cut taxes. Um, as it happens disproportionately for Republican voters, uh, and put the payment off to the future. Lyndon Johnson paid for the war in Vietnam as it went. He raised taxes. Now, it's a politically dangerous thing to raise taxes. So when the people see that, that's an opportunity for them to say, wait a minute, as they did. We don't like this war. We don't want to pay more for it. And get and got rid of the president. it's it's the politics, not the economics, that should become the dominant consideration in how you pay for war.
0: My guest today has been Bruce Buena de Mosquito. His book is The Spoils of War. Bruce, thanks for being a guest on Econ Talk. It's
1: always a pleasure. Good to talk to you.